Welcome to the Ronin Rabbit, a Usagi Ojimbo fan podcast. I'm your host, Ed Moore. There will be spoilers on this show, so keep that in mind going forward. Feedback can be left on Twitter at Teal, T-E-A-L Productions, on the posting of the episode on the Usagi Ojimbo Dojo Facebook page, at the website bigtimenoise.com slash Rabbit, and you can email me at usagipodcast at gmail.com. A couple things I wanted to talk about this episode. First up is Usagi Ojimbo Volume 4, Issue Number 1, now produced by IDW, cover dated June 2019. And the title of the story is Bunraku, and this is the first of three parts. Uh, Some changes in the book, since it has moved over from Dark Horse, probably the most prominent is that the book is now in color, full color, so... We have that as we open up the pages, and we see a character that, if this is your first issue, you are probably not familiar with. But if you have read previous issues, you see that the first character we encounter is Sasuke, a uh, demon hunter. And he is indeed fighting a horde of demons. Maybe not exactly a horde. There's a few less than a horde, but it's many. It's very many. And they finally, um, what would you call it, dogpile, I guess, on him. And with a large bakaroom, he scatters 15 or 20 of these demons that are all roughly uh, about half his size. So they're kind of like uh, pygmy demons or dwarf demons, whatever. Um, and he scatters them. And we see that he, he starts to maybe falteringly step, or, or he starts to falter, he weakens, his his bearing is, is pulled in and his shoulders slumped, but then he hears from off to uh, beside him or behind him a voice yell out, Demon Queller, and he turns, and as he turns we see a big exclamation point in that um, frame, but then after that we back up behind him and off to the side, and we see that he is fighting now a demon who is... Um, I don't know, probably five, six, seven times his size, screaming, you will pay for killing my children. So this is the origin demon that begat all the little dwarfy demons that Sasuke finally, uh, or not finally, but just killed. And a fight ensues. Uh, Sasuke cuts one of the limbs off. Looks like there are four limbs. Kind of an anthropomorphic demon, roughly, but not strictly. Uh, it does appear to be on two legs and have two arms, but they also could be legs as well, just from the um, attitude of the demon. You can't necessarily tell, but Sasuke cuts off one of what is uh, passing for the arms um, around the wrist or so. The demon throws flame from its mouth at Sasuke, and he hits back with an icy blast wind, he exclaims, as it emits from one of his hands, um, kind of throwing the demon off and back off of balance, at which time uh, Sasuke jumps up um, with a massive stroke and of his sword and fells the demon, falling past panting and wheezing, uh, dropping his sword again, uh, assuming that very um, weakened posture that he had just prior to killing this large demon. Once again, his attention is drawn by uh, this time someone saying his name, Sasuke, and as he looks up, it is an image of Master 
Shoki that he sees. And it's telling him, you know, good job for killing this demon, but there are other demons in Kuriyama Mura that you must go and attend to. And so he uh, almost dejectedly uh, shuffles on down the, the path, the trail that he's walking on to his next appointment with his um, appointed task. It's not really something he's chosen to do. He's been appointed to do it. Uh, but he very much seems um, weakened. Uh, and indeed, Master Shoki says that he's exhausted and his life force is almost completely drained. Owning to the fact that if this is the first time you have encountered this character, um, perhaps you see that the energy that powers the things he does, the blast that threw off all the demons, the icy wind blast that he emitted from his hand, perhaps that is fueled by his personal life essence. It's not connected to anything else. He doesn't draw it from anywhere else. It comes from him. So uh, he then would be his own battery. He would exhaust and have to recharge that given amount of charge that he uses to power his different abilities. Next, we cut to a scene of a couple men arguing over uh, someone who turns out to be Princess Momoko. And the two men come to blows, both drawing a sword. One killing the other and then kind of... um, bragging about it. He says his skill with the blade was pathetic, as were his boasts. But now you are mine, he says to the princess. Tell me, my princess, where is your father's kingdom? And she says, my father is the king of hell! And she gets these claws and the big, uh, pointy, toothy mouth that's wide open, and she comes at him, screaming, and he screams as well in fright. Then, um, on the next page... Uh, we, we have something interesting. On the on the two pages, there are five panels. The upper panel on both pages is one continuous panel. So you read the one continuous panel at the top, then the two on the left, then the two on the right. Uh, even though um, this is very much steeped in Japanese uh, folklore, this reads physically very much Americanized. So you read top, bottom, left, right. Uh, for those of you... Uh, not meaning to, you know, insult anyone, but for those of you that may have gotten confused somewhere along the way about how to how to do this. So the top panel going all the way across the two pages, we have backed up and we see uh, something. We see a, a group of people watching, perhaps an audience. We see something going on in front of them. Almost like, let's say it's on stage, and I'm, I'm throwing up some quotes here. And of course, in the podcast, you, you can all see that, right? Uh, yeah. Okay. I was using hand quotes. Um, and then off to the side, uh, the right-hand side, we have a gentleman sitting reading and a gentleman sitting next to him playing a traditional Japanese instrument. Down on, on stage, again, air quotes, we see four characters, right, that are in full color. But then we see four characters that are just blackened out shadow with just white eyes drawn in. And as we read, we see, uh, we, we learn a, a couple different things. We, we see a continuation of the story of the princess and the uh, her suitor who has defeated someone else to become her suitor. He has found out that she is a demon as her father is the king of hell. And she attacks him with, uh, what does he call it, tangling webs. Um, Also, we see that these are puppets that we're watching. 
the black shadows are the puppeteers. And then the, the off to the side is the narrator and the, the musical accompaniment to the narrator. Um, Usagi, we, we now see Usagi, which I believe this is the first... Yeah, this is the first time we've seen him in, and we're 12 pages in, and we're just now seeing our, our protagonist, the namesake of the book. So he is watching this play, and he's thinking some things. Uh, such an amazing puppetry. You don't even notice the three operators. Those are the completely shadowed. Here, they're just drawn as black figures with the white eye slits. Um, Usagi continues thinking to himself, the Teyu, which is the narrator, is blind, so the scripts have to be memorized, and then we, uh, our attention is drawn to the narrator who is speaking. As we turn the page, we see that the princess furthers her attack until she is atop her suitor, who is all tangled up. She says, pathetic man-thing. And then we have one of the narrators. Let me take a look. No, we have a different narrator who we're going to find that he is named I believe this is the same gentleman named Nobu yeah he comes on the stage and tells the audience that that is all for the current performance um, that the next act will resume after a brief intermission and Usagi is um, he exclaims you know the, the to show the emotion the uh, word balloon with an exclamation point I guess maybe that's a huh, or, you know, some kind of sound that, that would show um, surprise, uh, perhaps displeasure, because he continues thinking, what a cliffhanger. This certainly is an exciting play. I wish I could stay for the entire story, but the Bunraku plays, but Bunraku plays usually go on for an entire day. Maybe I'll be able to see it another time. So he's apparently pushed for time, although as the story continues, he must not be that pushed for time because of what occurs. But So he is um, saddened, I guess you could say, disappointed that he won't be able to see any more than what he has seen, and it has uh, captured his interest. So he goes up to Nobu and tells him, uh, strikes up a conversation. That was an amazing performance, Usaki says. Uh, Nobu counters... Ah, Samurai, thank you for attending our show. Usagi, the puppets, the movements and expressions are so lifelike, it's difficult to believe they're not alive. And and that is certainly something that we were led to believe uh, by the way that Mr. Sakai cut from the Sasaki, uh, Sasuke portion at the beginning of the story right into the play because we have, um, what, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14... We have 14 panels, one, two, three, three pages, three whole pages showing the play, and the only figures you see are the puppets. You don't see the puppeteers, you don't see the audience. So um, that definitely leads us to believe that this is some uh, something live occurring and not something uh, preordained via puppetry. Uh, Nobu continues, thank you, Samurai. To a master puppeteer, they're practically living beings. Please join me on the stage. I'm Nobu, a lowly apprentice. After operating the Nino's feet for 10 years, I've been promoted to animating the left hand. I hope to become an Omazukai and operate the right hand and head, but it will be another 10 years. So here is uh, Mr. Sakai's uh, uh, teaching us some things about the art of Bunraku, of, of the puppetry. 
And as they're talking, Nobu notices uh, Takagi Sensai is the narrator and master of the company. We're a small traveling troupe with only six puppets. Uh, now, something I did notice. Um, it seemed to me, and this could just be because of the uh, limitations of the medium, the, the printed page comic book that we're looking here. Um, there were four people on st- uh, puppets on stage, and there were four puppeteers. But... Nobu tells us that each puppet has more than one operator. I, I, I feel that that's, that's what we're being told. So um, it, it's interesting that these human, even, sized puppets, that there would be room, I guess, I don't know if it's just on stage or if, or if perhaps traditionally there's an above story, like a lot of our stringed marionettes that we're familiar with, or uh, that I am more familiar with, I should say. Um, that there's room for that many people. One operates the left hand, one operates the right hand and head, uh, one operates the feet. So that's at least three people. The feet, the right, and then, you know, and I guess the torso. Uh, so there's three to five to six people operating each life-size, pretty much, puppet. And I, I find that very interesting, that they don't trip over each other. And it's it's that would mean that it, what the puppeteers do in operating the puppet turns out to be very much like dance rather than just a simple manipulation of, of their hands physically or something like that. But, okay. Um, and as uh, Takagi comes up to the conversation that is occurring with his apprentice, um, I don't know, maybe he overheard it and was more curious or something like that, but he comes up and Nobu bows um, appropriately. Ah, Nakage-sensei, here's a samurai who has taken an interest in our work. And Takagi responds, You honor me, samurai, and my humble troop. Usagi introduces himself. Uh, the conversation goes back and forth a little bit until uh, Takagi invites Usagi to enjoy some tea with him during the intermission between performances. And we see Nobu uh, and... Well, no, Nobu disappears on us. We see a different apprentice carrying one of the puppets off stage and, and going uh, back to the maybe the storeroom or somewhere to, to do something with the puppet. And then as they're having tea, it's Takagi, Nobu, uh, Nobu and Usagi sitting. And then behind Usagi, we see that there are several puppets hanging, which is kind of weird in a way because so many of these panels have these puppets just hanging there on the wall or you see a part of the puppet head as the uh, camera moves or you know things like that it's it's really odd Uh, so they're having a conversation about the play itself now and we see that usagi is um he he's not overjoyed by how dark the play was um and feels that is it possible for it to be more uplifting or to have some amount of cheeriness or brightness to it? You know, it was just, it was all very dark. And Takagi, Takagi, right? Yeah. Uh, tells him, well, know that the Bunraku stories are dramas. Uh, love suicide reenactments are very popular. And he says, would would you go against that tradition? And Usagi's like, well, no, of, of course not. You know, he was just asking for his taste. It was kind of dark. Does it have to be that dark is what he was asking. And then Takagi tells him, forgive me, Usagi-san, but each performance exhausts me more and more, and I have another act in a short while. Um, kind of out of nowhere. It, it struck me kind of odd. Uh, 
Usagi gives his apologies and uh, leaves thanking Takagi for his hospitality. And then Nobu shows up to escort the samurai, you know, out through whatever way he, he has to go. And now the camera shifts outside and we see Usagi exiting the building. And he says, thinking, I don't know why they made the entrances so low. And indeed, the the door that he is coming through is, is half uh, towards the bottom. Like if you took a door and you filled in the top half and just the bottom half was the hole to go in and out, that's where he's coming through. More like a just a, an escape hole in the wall than anything else. And then someone off to the side says, off camera says, to discourage people from sneaking in without paying. And Usagi's like, what? And he looks up and he sees and exclaims, Sasuke. Sasuke asks him, did you enjoy the performance, Usagi? How did you know what I was thinking? You, you must have been thinking it out loud, Sasuke tells him. <laughs> and Usagi's like, no, I, I don't think so. Uh, but it seems that whenever you appear, it's because bad things are going to happen. Why are you here? And then he just stops and realizes, turns to him and says, there's some evil here, isn't there? Well, isn't there? Let's go talk at this inn, Sasuke tells him. So they uh, mosey on over to the inn here, and they pass one. And as they pass it, Usagi says, well, there's there's one here, which was basically right next door to the puppetry place. And Sasuke tells him, not there. The owner's a Nekakubi in disguise. And uh, as they pass on by, Usagi looks back at the proprietor who is out um, barking to try to draw in an audience, not literally barking, but like a carnival barker does, you know, talking up the wares. Um, Usagi's looking back over his shoulder, and Sasuke tells him, don't worry, his, he's sworn off eating people flesh. And uh, there, there is a reference down here, which I, I thought was kind of odd. Um, rather than telling us what a Nekakubi was, the reference is to where the appearance of Sasuke was in story time that he fought this Nekakube. Uh, Usagi Yojimbo Book 27, A Town Called Hell. Now, that kind of bugged me because I don't buy to read Usagi by trade. I buy to read Usagi by individual issues. So I don't know what issue that is, and I have all the issues. So I would have to do some research to go and find um, what issue that is. And that's kind of a personal preference. The whole world in comic book references seems to be referring to trades, but yet everybody still sells single issues. So people who buy single issues are kind of left out of the loop sometimes because references are always made in trades. Where was the story? When you go online to look up reading orders and chronologies and things like that, everybody seems to be so focused on trade, but yet I'm holding in my hand a single issue. And obviously, the single issue was important to IDW because so far they have pumped out 26 variant covers for single issues to pump up the sales. So, I mean, uh, I, the, the two thinkings don't seem to mesh to me, and I just wonder... You know, is this a, a marketing versus creator kind of conflict or what it is? But um, it is something personally that kind of bugs me, but that's neither here nor there. The Nekakube is the kind of uh, Japanese yokai that sometimes will manifest as a human-like creature with a very long telescoping neck, almost like a tentacle. And on the end of the tentacle is the head. Or the head will detach and fly around on its own. So those are the two most prevalent types of Nekakube. And to be honest, um, 
I don't recall which kind this was. I, I'm, I don't recall the reference, what issues were in book 27. I'd have to look that up and see if I've read them. Uh, which brings up a, a point. Um, at no time do I want people to think or feel that I'm, I'm trying to be some sort of expert on Usagi Ujimbo. I'm a fan, and I've been a fan for a long time. And just in the past handful of years have I actually started uh, determinedly reading Usagi from the beginning. Um, I just recently crossed into the Dark Horse volume. Um, I'm up to issue 36 uh, as far as what I've read and what I have talked about on these uh, these shows, if you go back the back episodes. Um, how I label the episodes from now on is going to change a little bit, but that's that's not a big deal. But So I, there's a lot of things that I may forget. There's a lot of things that I may not have encountered. And so I don't, I don't want to um, leave people thinking that, that I'm any kind of expert in Usagi. Uh, I'm just a dude that's reading the book, and I, I try to be fairly informed, but there are some things that that get over my head. We'll run into one of those here in a minute when I talk about some other things here on this episode. And so, you know, I, I, I'm just a fan. Uh, I genuinely try hard to do my best, but at times I kind of slip and, and falter with things. So just keep that in mind. Uh, for the new people, I'm sure people that have listened to my shows before have run into some of my gooberness in the, in the past. So it's not a surprise to them. So Usagi and Sasuke go inside, and they're having more tea, I would assume. Um, I don't think they really tell us, but they do show drinking here. They could be drinking sake, but I don't think the cups are correct. So it's probably tea over some, perhaps, sushi here that they're eating. There's food in front of them as well. Sushi, uh, that'll come up a little bit later in the episode as well. Uh, so they're talking. Uh, Sasuke is explaining why he's here, and he makes mention, mention of Master Shoki. And Usagi exclaims, Shoki the demon queller? He's a myth! And Sasuke tells him, well, you saw him yourself, Usagi, after the episode of the Undead Warriors. And again, a reference to a trade paperback and title of the story. Not individual issues, so unfortunately... Uh, so they continue on their conversation until it gets dark outside. And I would assume, I don't know, uh, we, we see the town at night. Um, I don't know if this was going, if, if what we're seeing is simultaneous to the conversation. I would think that Usagi and Sasuke have gone to bed, and this is later on at night while they're sleeping. We have several panels of the town as the camera zooms in to the puppetry building. The stage, backstage, the puppets, Princess Momoko. And then on the final panel, Princess Momoko blinks with big, wide eyes and a very evil, toothy, sharp, pointy teeth kind of smile, but it's not a big smile. It's kind of like a grin or a grimace with the big eyes that we see blink open, and we have the word blink here. And so, um, I don't know. Princess Momoko was a puppet when we first saw her. Uh, maybe she still is. Maybe she's not. And then we have a uh, the cover shot for next month's issue, issue number two, and we have some uh, flavor text here that I'm going to go ahead and read for those of you that want to exit, uh, by all means. I'm also going to talk about a couple more short stories from a book uh, that I was uh, proud to be a part of as much as I was a part of it. So uh, I'm going to get into that here in a little bit too. But first, 
we're told that Bunraku, also called Ningyo Chururi, is a, and I apologize, I am terminally Anglo, so a lot of these words just may not fit in my mouth just right, and I apologize for that. It's a form of puppet theater founded in Osaka. The modern form was named after the puppeteer Uemura Banrakuken, who revived the traditional theater. Ningyo is the word for puppet or doll, and Joruri refers to the combination of chanting accompanied with a mus- musical instrument. So those are our two narrators, one reading and one probably chanting and playing, playing the instrument. The origins of puppet plays date back to more than 1,200 years. Shrine rituals involving puppets have been used for centuries on the island of Kyushu. It was believed that the puppets were actually inhabited by the gods. Chanting a story dates back about a 1,000 years. Buddhist monks told stories while playing a stringed instrument called a biwa. During the 16th century, the shamisen replaced the biwa in popularity. Bunraku combines all three elements to tell a story. The ningyatsuke puppeteers, the teyu, chanter, and the shemison player. When the arts of puppetry and chanting, a story accompanied by a shemison, were combined at the beginning of the 17th century, it created a new form of entertainment. The main puppeteer, the omosukai, operates the right hand and head of the puppet. The hidarazukai operates the left hand, and the ashizukai controls the feet and legs. Okay, so there we go, there's three. Together, they make the puppets move as if they're almost alive. You can almost see them breathing. Sometimes they seem to cry or laugh. Puppeteers begin by training with the feet for up to 10 years, then move to the left hand for another 10 before advancing to the right hand and head of secondary characters. The operators work in full view of the audience, all wearing black robes and hoods except for the masters. The style of hoods worn vary according to the school to which the puppeteer belongs. Now, we didn't see any indication of that. We just saw black in what Mr. Sakai was showing us. Usually a single chanter describes the scene and actions as well as provides the voices for all the characters. He chants everything in a formal rhythm and vocal style called Gidayubushi. The shamisen adds another level of enjoyment to the story. There are three types of shamisen classified by the thickness of their necks. The one used in Banraku is the largest of them with the lower pitch and fuller more dramatic tone. Unlike the Western style of puppet theater, the Bunraku stories are dramas with lover suicides or relationships between a father and a son, or a samurai to his lord, our favorite themes. Many of the stories have been adapted from kabuki theater. Bunraku stories are divided into several acts which can be enjoyed on their own. The entire story can take a full day to perform. A short story may take four hours, while a long one will take up to 12 hours to tell. Shikamatsu... Manzeman is regarded as the Shakespeare of Bunraku, having written more than a hundred plays. He wrote about real events that people could relate to. Many of the stories revolve around the Japanese concept of duty and honor over love. The National Bunraku Theater in Osaka is the center for this art form and stages more than 100 performances a year. 100 performances of between 4 and 12 hours. That's a lot of time. With three people per puppet and then a narrator and a shemison player. So, okay. Let's look over some terms here. Bunraku, which is the, the uh, puppetry. The ningyo, which is the puppeteer. Omazukai, uh, which is one of the puppet operators. I believe that is the left hand. And let's see. Yes, the omazukai is the right hand and head. And I believe that's the only specific that is given. 
The Ninos are mentioned in the story, but that is just a generic term. And then we have the Nukakube, which is the yokai with the uh, funky head one way or another. Either it detaches or it's on a big like tentacle thing. All right, moving on here. The other thing that I want to talk about are the first two stories that appeared in the brand new 35th anniversary Usagi Yojimbo tribute book put together by uh, frequenters of the Usagi Yojimbo Dojo forums. Now, the book, uh, the concept, and was coordinated by Mr. Steve Hubble. Layout and formatting by Amy Lester. Proofreading by Cheryl, Angela, and Kami Takahara. Now, the first story is entitled Makikun, and it comes to us from Ivan Roca. It first appeared in a one-shot jam, capital J-A-M, published in Spain by Rock Media in 2018. So, the story opens, as I said, it's called Makikun. Uh, we see a character who is a, uh, a... All the characters in this story are sushi. Now, uh, if the author, Ivan Roca, or people who are more versed in sushi uh, would care to send me the information. I didn't, I, I'm not familiar with all the types of sushi that are in here. So I don't know if the type of sushi that was selected uh, is indicative of any aspect of the characters in which they were used to portray. Uh, does that make sense? I don't know if the type of sushi dictates how the characters acted in that they were that type of sushi. Uh, but the main character is Maki. And we see him, I guess him or her, traveling. Um, they are referred to as a, as a samurai, as a ronin. So I would assume that that more than likely makes it a male character. Um, he is waylaid by three Inari, all brandishing weapons. And they go to attack him, but because he's a ronin, um, they're, they, they don't think he's worth it. And then they ask him, uh, do you hide a package? That's all. Do you hide it? And he says, well, no, I, I don't have anything at all. So they move on, the, the three Inari. Uh, next up, Maki arrives at an inn saying that he needs to rest. And as he comes up, a uh, tempura, uh, I believe shrimp, tells him now it, it's upright with the tail uh, out of the tempura batter being the top of the head. Okay, like a, like a headdress of some sort. Uh, asks Maki, can you keep an eye on my bag? Uh, and and he goes inside. Well, as Maki is standing outside, the three Inari come up on the inn and feel that Maki lied to them about having a package because now he has a package. And so they attack but are quickly dispatched by Maki. And the, uh, the tempura comes out and asks, what happened here? And Maki tells him, well, they attacked me. I tried to reason with them. Uh, they were looking for someone with a package. If it's no trouble to you, I, I think I'll walk with you because the Tempora has a package. Uh, now, also something that's pretty cool is as they start on their journey, the Tempora uh, puts a casa on uh, that has a hole in the top of the hat, right? So that it slides down over the shrimp fin that's sticking out over top the Tempora. I, I just thought that was kind of cool. Uh, and they journey on. They pass a couple woodcutters who are another type of uh, sushi that I'm not familiar with. It looks like they've been temporad, but I don't recognize the style. Kind of an homage to the fact that the woodcutters frequently appear in Mr. Sakai's stories. Um, actually, this first issue of this new volume, they didn't, they didn't make an appearance, I don't think, off the top of my head. So, 
continue on their journey. Um, they are soon waylaid by a Tamaki who attacks Maki, and he dispatches him, her. We see here, let's see, do we see it anywhere else? No, here, so far, uh, the word balloon with the skull in it that Mr. Sakai is a fan of using, which did show up in the first issue that I just spoke of when Usagi killed the big demon. Uh, he, he used that to denote that it had been killed. So Maki uh, dispatches the Timaki, continues on their journey to wherever Tempura is going, which turns out to be a another temple. Now here, we have the master, who is a tempura of some sort, but I don't recognize it, and his two attendants, which are uh, the same variety of sushi as well. So uh, here's two more varieties, the master and the two attendants, varieties of sushi that I don't recognize. So I'm not sure if uh, the master is another... It, I, I believe he's a tempura, but I don't know if it's a veggie or if it's shrimp or, or what it is. But he's got a, a head, looks like a headdress too, but it's differently stylized than what our uh, journeying tempura with Maki dude has. Um, so they've arrived, and the master says, We have been waiting for this horseshoe for a week. And Maki exclaims, A horseshoe? And the master says, well, haven't you heard the news? You see, it is said, one night a blacksmith had a visitor asking for a pair of horseshoes. For his feet were odd and looked like hooves. The blacksmith recognized him as Satan and expressed the need to chain him up to attend his petition. The client agreed. With his trickery, the blacksmith did his job, causing such pain to the devil that he requested mercy repeatedly. The blacksmith had mercy finally, but he made the devil swear before being released that he would never enter a house with a horseshoe hanging on the door. Um, now, uh, the blacksmith is definitely a, a kind of sushi, and the devil is demarked in such a way that it probably is recognizable to somebody that knows more about sushi, I guess, than I do. If the devil is also a piece of sushi, I'm not sure. Uh, our story continues, though, that the master tells them, and this is the reason that we are hanging horseshoes on all the temple doors. And the tempora priest is like, what do you know? A horseshoe. The master continues, we're in your debt. So we hope you'll accept a bed for the night in our temple. And Maki says, well, of course. It's rather late, so I gladly accept your offer. Then we have a panel of night and a panel of day. The two priests thanking Maki, Maki saying Abeo, and he continues on his journey, and he wanders up to someone who suspiciously looks like the devil in the mini tale that the master was telling us. And this other traveler asks, Excuse me, young man, do you know if there's a temple around here? Well, certainly, there's a temple that way. You'll probably arrive before noon. Well, thanks a lot, samurai. Uh, one more thing, do you know by any chance if it's protected against evil? And Maki says, yes, I helped in the transport of the last charm. And the devil exclaims, looking at us with his fist up, says, damn blacksmith. Um, now, something curious. I'm familiar with the aspect of the horseshoe. But in looking at the way that this horseshoe is put on the door, uh, it is put with the uh, sides facing down. My understanding in uh, some aspect of uh, Anglo folk folklore that the horseshoe is placed with prongs facing up so that the good luck, because it's placed there for good luck, but it's placed that way so that the good luck doesn't run out. 
so it, it holds all the good luck. So uh, I, I wonder if if this story is part of Japanese folklore or if the um, writer made it up. All right. Uh, the second story and final for this episode that I want to talk about is One Hand Clapping by Mark Morris and Zach Davison. This originally appeared in color. It's in black and white in here. As The Narrow Road, One Hand Clapping by Gateless Gate Studios in 2016. Now here we have two priests who are journeying, both of them wearing very large casas. Uh, I believe they're priests because their walking sticks are very ornamental and they have the rings that will be prominent uh, in popular culture at least uh making noise i've always assumed either to alert evil doers that the priests were there or to help drive evil spirits away i've i've read both things as to why they're made to be loose and make noise at the top with the rings and the ornamentation but priests nonetheless traveling and they're talking uh one is a frog and he seems to be the the understudy um the uh, a student teacher relationship but not maybe strictly student teacher maybe like third year second year or something like that with the frog being the underling uh, but they're talking and the frog says it's stupid the sound of one hand clapping what's that even mean just some kid's joke and then he makes a motion like he's trying to clap with his hand and the his um partner who appears to be a canine of some sort maybe a coyote or a wolf maybe a fox something like that uh it's a cohen a riddle if the answer were obvious it wouldn't be of any use look deeper he tells him with kind of an exasperated look on his face um and here for the second time we have a panel that has some rather trollish looking dudes in it like they're watching or maybe following our duo um, and the one, uh, the, the older says, this is, there is hidden wisdom there. The challenge is finding it. And just then they hear a snap. Um, they turn to where their backs are to each other so that they can guard all angles. Suddenly they're attacked with a, some sound like that. And several of these, uh, trolley looking dudes jump out. And as they're defending themselves, and dispatching the trolls, the conversation is continuing, okay? As the older one says, besides, it's a matter of phrasing. You have to get the words right. The frog jumps in and, and takes out somebody that's attacking the, the other one. And he says, thanks. Maybe less talking, the frog says. Um, the older one continues, the, the canine one. The correct phrase is, if two hands together makes a clap, then what is the sound of one hand? And thwack, we see as the frog hits one of the uh, trolley dudes with one hand. Now you have solved the riddle. Uh, the frog squints and says, let's get to work. So they looks like they align the trolls, all feet pointing towards them. They both sit down on the ground with a scroll unfolded in front of them and they start chanting um and in the process it appears as though the uh spirits the souls of the trolls are extracted and they are put into this foldable scroll that these two priests have 
the trolls don't necessarily look to be in distress or anything by this as far as because we see a picture of the scroll. So I'm, I'm not sure what the point exactly is. The uh, canine one then folds up the scroll and puts it away. And the frog says, well, I still think it's stupid. I don't feel any more enlightened. Might as well say, what's the sound of one butt cheek farting? And then thwack as the coyote smacks the, as the canine one smacks the frog, which was the sound of one hand clapping. Yeah, so um, most interesting thing to me about the story was that there was nothing standard or typical about the um, panel layout. Each page had a different layout. Some of the panels had four sides. Many of them had more than four sides. One of the panels was even circular. So a lot of visual variety, a lot of talking that crossed panel borders. Uh, some some characters that were drawn crossed panel borders. So the, the panel borders looked like they were more intended to help guide you through the story than any strict type of uh, formatting, which, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, both of these stories are in black and white. Uh, the first was in black and white, just lines, with uh, black as being the only coloring in. It was either filled in black or it was open uh, with the uh, negative space being white line drawings. But this second story had a lot more shading in it, grays, uh, stippling, I believe is what it's called, with the, the dots, looks like. Uh, so there was a lot more texture to it, a lot more visual richness to it. Not that, that uh, I don't say richness in a um, qualitative description, but more in a quantitative description. Um, I did not find anything about the first story visually unpleasing to say that this methodology employed by the second story was more aesthetically pleasing to me. Not at all. Uh, both stories I enjoyed. Both stories were fairly well done. Uh, the art in both was, was good. Uh, the story in both was cool. I was left with questions from both, um, which you know have to do with my understanding of concepts. Uh, in the second story, the taking of the souls and imparting them on this um, scroll... I, I don't know, you know, was that commonly done? Was that just for the story? Is there a deeper significance? Which I probably imagine there is. And in the first story, being just tragically Anglo, my my knowledge of sushi is is very limited. Uh, not very limited. It's, it's pretty limited. So, you know, some of these other characters, perhaps they are sushi that I have even encountered. I consume sushi. Um, but I am not familiar enough with them. Uh, I, I did know, recognize the Inari and the Tamaki, uh, Maki, I knew, and then the Tempura, which I'm not necessarily sure that that qualifies um, that I'm aware of as a type of sushi. I, I thought Tempura was more technique. but um, And then others. That's only about half of the characters. So, you know, there's there's more in there that I could stand to know that I, I don't already. Um, so for the next four, uh, there will be five episodes counting this one. As I talk about an issue of the new volume of Usagi, I'm going to talk about two of the stories in this 35th anniversary Usagi Ujimbo tribute. There are ten uh, an even number, so that gives me two per episode for five episodes. So I'm 
definitely looking forward to that. I, I will read them before I record. So I haven't, this is the first time I've read any of the stories in this. Um, I'll read them as I go. And actually, I do that as well for Usagi's book also. Uh, that way, any impressions or anything like that are in as fresh in my mind as they can be, perhaps even coming to me as I'm recording. So... Uh, I apologize if that technique, you know, is not pleasing to some of you, that almost stream of consciousness kind of thing, but it's, uh, it's the way I do it to try to keep it interesting for me. So thanks a lot, guys. Episode or issue two of the new volume, and then the next two stories from the 35th anniversary tribute book are what's on tap for next. Whatever Works by Connor Naylor and Wondrous by Randy Clute are the next two tribute stories that I'll discuss. With all that being said, this is one of my longest episodes in a while, so hope everything was okay. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Talk to you guys next time. Ciao. The Ronin Rabbit Podcast is a Teal production, and as such, is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution, Non-Commercial, Non-Derivatives 3.0, Unported License.